So welcome everybody to this afternoon's meditation class. And the usual announcement is to make sure that the introduction to meditation class is being held, I think, in the room uh, next door. This is the ongoing class. The main difference is uh, because people here have meditated before, it gives the opportunity to go deeper into the subject of meditation and we also sit for a longer period of time. So for those of you who are joining for the first or second time, the course called the Introduction to Meditation class is being held in the room to my right. And in this uh, class, one of the things which I thought I should talk about, there are many types of meditation, many forms of meditation, I'm sure you've heard of some of the different types of meditation. What is the difference? Actually, what is meditation? Sometimes when I teach, I always talk about relaxing your body and calming your mind. And he said, is that it, just calming the mind? Many of you have heard of insight being important to become enlightened. But what actually is the insight and what is meditation to do with that? So the path of meditation uh, taught in Buddhism is learning how to, first of all, keep the mind still. And in order to keep the mind still, the body has to be relaxed so it can disappear. By that, another way of looking at it in the Buddhist way of things is we have the five external senses seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. But there's more than those five senses. There's this sense called the mind. And especially when that mind is free, totally free from the other five senses. And it's not just how those five senses play with the mind, it's actually the mind totally separated from those. And this is like a standard uh, old tradition of meditation, even from the time of the Buddha, to keep yourself still enough that something happens. And what happens is maybe not what you expect. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this many times before, when you sit still, things disappear. And they're meant to disappear. The way our human brain works it only notices things which change. You can only notice night when it's day. You can only notice warm when it's cold. You do need change, a distinction, in order for you to understand just what these senses are like. And what happens in meditation, first of all, that encourage you to sit comfortably. We do have chairs, we have cushions, we have stools. And that is important. It's important because one of the first things uh, to reach is when the body is really comfortable. And you may notice, when your body is comfortable, there's not that many aches or pains, then you find the body can disappear, it can like vanish. You can't feel your hands. You can't feel your back, you can't feel your legs, you can't feel your head. It kind of all disappears, the sense of physical touch goes. 
And also, you notice that when we meditate, I always encourage you to close your eyes. So the sense of sight disappears. Also encourage you to make sure that um, everyone is quiet. As quiet as can be, you can never get total silence in a hall with many people, but it's silent enough that soon sound turns off. It's very easy to turn off the sense of smell and of course the sense of uh, taste, obviously, there's nothing really much to taste. That's why you're not allowed to chew things when you're meditating. And it's also why if anybody does um, have any uh, flatulence, we always make sure they sit at the back. Isn't that right, Eddie? No, he's <laughs> I don't think you heard that. So that the sense of smell is not changed. In the old days, of course, that's one of the reasons why they would have incense in the meditation hall. And I'm serious there, in order actually to make sure the smell was constant. And if the smell is constant, after a while, you don't smell anything. You don't have to have perfect silence. Now we have the can you hear the sound of the aircons? After a few minutes you won't hear anything from them because it's an ambient noise, it doesn't change and therefore it disappears. And that's one of the things which we aim for, the disappearance of the five sense activities and that's not an easy thing to do. But when it does happen, imagine that you don't need to hear anything you don't see anything, you can't feel your body. It's like all these things calm down, become peaceful. And that will be able to expose what's underneath all of this. And that is this sixth sense which we call the mind. That sixth sense which we call the mind is something which is not just in the Eastern philosophies and spiritual traditions, it was also there in the Western tradition as well. In a time, if any of you have read um, things like Plato's Republic, all those Greek philosophers always said, even Aristotle says specifically, that we have the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touch, we also have the sixth sense of the mind and he called it a common sense because whatever the other five senses experience the mind can also know as well, it's common to the other five senses. Now what we want to do is to see how we can make sure that we just have the sense of mind active but not the other senses. And to be able to do that is why we first of all we sit down, meditate, get to know our bodies, relax the bodies until the body just basically disappears. You can go inside of it. I say inside of it, but it's not like a physical location. That's just a nice metaphor. And when you go inside of that, then you just have this thing which we call the mind. Most meditations are all about 
calming your body, making it comfortable, so you can sit there comfortably without needing to move. So that physical sense of the body can mostly turn off. But there are other parts of the body which are hard to turn off. A good example of this is that when uh, there were these sensory deprivation chambers. And these sensory deprivation chambers that I never got to go in one, but uh, the person who was here before me, Ajahn Chakra, did this. He went inside one of these sensory deprivation chambers. You were floating in salty water, so it perfectly um, supported your weight. There was no pressure of your legs on a cushion or your back against a chair. Basically, there was no pressure on any part of your body at all. It was uh, dark, you couldn't see, it was soundproof, and basically all those five senses were restrained, subdued. But then, how he described it is once all those five senses disappeared, the thing which was left, which was loud, was his breathing and his uh, thinking. So that's one of the reasons we try to learn how to be, have the inner silence. And of course you'll know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you can think you're doing meditation, you're thinking about all sorts of plans and fantasies and memories, basically just rubbish. You don't need to think about those. It's one of the reasons why I emphasize stillness and silence. And of course, there's so many stories about silence. If you're describing something, you're noticing the words, the description. And the description is just, the very best descriptions are only approximations to a truth. It's one of the reasons why I was just uh, remembering a couple of the poets I used to really get into when I was a student. One was, interestingly, John Keats. I used to carry around a book of his poetry when I was a student. And also you know, the great Robbie Burns. But sometimes, the only reason they were inspiring poets was because they can take a concept and they can describe it in such a beautiful way. They had the gift, the power of language. And they could describe something which I'd experienced, but describe it in such an accurate way. They went much closer to it than I could ever explain. And especially in many parts of nature, just something simple like the, the rise of the dawn in the early morning. You've all seen that, but can you explain it? Can you describe it to someone else and capture the beauty and the magnificence of it? That's one of the reasons why it's a difference between experience and the ability to explain it to somebody else. And here in meditation, you just want that experience of inner silence. And the experience of things vanishing and disappearing. And of course, when your five senses do start to disappear, you know, first of all the thinking goes, 
And then often you have something like the breath is still happening. But before we go to the breath, the thinking, those words which happen inside your mind, it's so important to be able just to let them go, subdue them, because they can drive you crazy, the thinking mind. And one of the reasons, one of the ways we can subdue the thinking mind, first of all, think slowly. If you have a thought pattern going on in your mind, deliberately think slowly, which means it takes away the power of thought. And if you have some fantasy which you have, then just jump fast forward to the end of the fantasy. I remember sometimes doing that as a young monk, lots of time on my hand, and sometimes I thought, well, I'm still young, I've got a good degree, what if I just disrobe and go and get married? And, and a lot of times I found that whenever that train of thought started happening, I would never rush it. I'd always make it go slow, 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 because if I said, then what? It took away all the joy from it. It was a journey of those fantasies which was attractive, not the ending. Because the ending showed me there was nothing really much there anyway. So that when the mind does become silent, it becomes more um, sensitive, more perceptive. It's not um, intruded upon by the way we perceive things. And that's the other thing, much of our perceptions, the way we th see things, even what we like, what we dislike, what makes us um, afraid, what makes us delighted, much of that is totally conditioned into you. You have been brainwashed by our culture. That's why simple things, like in Thailand, the Thai villagers were really afraid of these geckos. And I thought they were beautiful creatures. And you had a gecko in your hut and I said, oh, how can you stay in there? I thought it was delightful. But if you saw a spider, you know, the Thai people said, it's only a spider, that's not a problem. But as a Westerner, you were afraid of spiders. And I wondered, why was I afraid of spiders? because all the horror movies I saw as a kid. I do remember one of those horror movies, movies was called Tarantula. A tarantula which was uh, in a nuclear accident and became a huge monster tarantula, which is one of the reasons why as a young boy I became afraid of tarantulas. But those tarantulas when I was in Thailand, they lived in the roof of my huts, they were always there. And sometimes on a hot day, we didn't have air cod, so we just you know, had my lower robe on, but upper chest was bare. And sometimes the tarantulas would fall on your body. We were big ones. 
And I remember this many, many times. They'd follow in your body, and, and they'd run across your chest, your bare chest. And when I said that to people in the West, I spend my time just meditating and the tarantulas fall on me. I said, aren't you scared? Of course not, it's actually quite stimulating. <laughs> and that's how I remember them. It's different perceptions. That's why I cannot trust my thoughts. Which is one of the great way not to buy into thoughts. So you have inner silence. Now what happens when you have inner silence? That gives the opportunity for your senses to turn off, to disappear. Like many who have been on my retreats know there was an experience when I did a Zen retreat, never done one of those before, when I was still a lay person. And you were supposed to just keep your eyes open and watch a wall, your eyes open. I didn't know what to do, so I just followed the instructions. But I'd done meditation before, I knew how to be silent inside. And I was silent. You're just watching this wall, and then the wall vanished. It was there one second, it just wasn't there anymore. There's nothing left. My sense of sight had turned off. That was the first time that happened with my eyes open. And it was, I wasn't scared, this was interesting. And that's what happens with your senses. If you're still long enough and you don't think, you're aware, you're in control, but you're quiet. When these things happen, it's amazing. Your eyes are open, you're not seeing anything at all. Your ears are sensitive, but you don't hear anything. You've still got your physical touch, but the body vanishes. You're becoming quiet. And this is what we do in this meditation, as senses turn off. And then, that last, which Ajahn Chakra described and which happens, one of those last senses which turn off is the sense of physical touch with your breathing. So that's one of the reasons why the Buddha described the breath meditation. You're watching that breath. Naturally, you can't force this, these things. It has to be natural. And you're aware of just one breath just going in, one breath going out. You're not aware of the breath which happened before, the breath which happened afterwards. You're not even aware of the part of the breath which happened a moment ago, the part of the breath which is going to happen next. You're right in this moment with one experience of breath. What happens, of course, is your brain, your metabolism, it's becoming so peaceful, you don't need that much breath. So the breath gets very light, smooth, and long. And then it also gets joyful. It's one of the reasons why when I teach this meditation, I think you've heard me say it every week, please be aware of the delight which comes when you even relax your body. The body gets peaceful, and it feels good. Now when the body kind of disappears, and your breath becomes peaceful, that also becomes very delightful. And that delight is very important.
Because where that comes from is no, not from the five senses, not from the physical touch. It just comes from the mind. That's why the Buddha called it a citta sankara. Comes from the mind, and that becomes quite strong and overwhelming. It overwhelms the other five senses. It's the first sign that the five senses are becoming very weak and the sixth sense, your mind, is taking over. And soon that sense of delight gets extremely strong. And when it gets extremely strong, how you perceive it, it's not how it is, but how you perceive it, is usually a beautiful light which appears in the mind. It's what you've heard me talk about, what's in my books, called a nimitta. And all that nimitta is, you're not seeing with your eyes any light. The sense of sight is not working, it's turned off. What you are seeing, experiencing, this is where you're perceiving the beauty and delight of the mind. First time you're really seeing it. It's beautiful, delightful, and after you come out of those nimitta experiences, you have a, not, a huge amount of joy and clarity. You say, what's this got to do with insight? How it's got to do with insight is naturally, if you come out of a good meditation, it's like you go outside like the trees have been washed, like the sun is much brighter, just like the carpet has been replaced and it's a new carpet. Everything just you see with so much clarity and with much more beauty. That's what happens when the five hindrances have been suppressed and you're clear-minded. So when we talk about insight, seeing things as they truly are, we need to have that degree of power in our mind, to have the mind so still, five senses disappear, the very minimum, like nimittas come up, they're stable, they're still, they're bright, you have a power of energy inside of you, and when you come out, everything is just so clear. And when it's clear, of course, whatever you see, that's where the insight comes from. You can't truly have deep insight, no more than a telescope, which you have in your back garden, can any way compete with these amazing uh, telescopes which people put into orbit or you know, put into space. And they can see so much further. Like, it's not the hub. What do they call that latest telescope they put up? Hubble. No, that's the old one, Hubble. New one. You're as old as I am, so <laughs> remember the Hubble. They got this new high-tech one. But anyway, it can see so much deeper into our universe. It get much more insight, because it's clearer. See further. And that's a simile of a mind which is freed from the five senses and which has got the power afterwards, freeing from the five hindrances. And that's where amazing insights come up. 
blow you away. Why haven't I seen it anymore it before? Because your mind hasn't been clear enough. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just that our brain has been tired. Our mind has not really allowed to sort of see. And so much very fascinating and interesting stuff. Stuff which sometimes you argue with people about, about letting go of the past. It becomes obvious you can do that. About what happens when you die. It's obvious that there's such a thing as rebirth. You can even remember some of your previous lives. There's so much stuff, which is, you don't have to believe it, it's just right there in front of you, and you can't deny it. It's just as obvious as there's a big Buddha statue behind me. So this is actually what happens, where insight comes from. The insight in Buddhism does not come from rational thinking. It doesn't come from sitting down and working it all out, thinking. It is the insight which comes from silence. The wisdom which comes from a mind which has got lots and lots of power and can actually see things. So this is the path of meditation. And of course, I'm not going to tell you what those, in sometimes I do, sorry, what those insights are, but whatever you hear from any other monk or nun, it's never going to be as powerful as what you see for yourself. What you see and experience for yourself, that's called direct insight, your own. And my job as a teacher is to teach you how to find out from, for yourself. It's one of the reasons why even the Buddha used to say, I only teach people the way. You have to practice it. You have to find out for yourself what happens when your mind becomes really still and has power and things on the outside of the world vanish. Your body just disappears. Past and future vanish. Thoughts stop. You become so poised and so still. You don't go unconscious. Your mind now has freedom and power. It gets extremely strong and bright. Now you can see things. And what you see changes your world. Anyway, I went over a little bit there, an extra 10 minutes, please excuse me, but I thought I wanted to give a little bit extra today. Okay, any questions, please save them for afterwards, or even better, any questions, please answer them yourselves with your own insight by getting into deep meditation today. <laughs> okay, here we go. In the first part of the meditation, I'm going to go a little faster today. So first of all, be aware of your body. <laughs> Even I say that, and then I realize what a stupid thing it was to say. How are you aware of your body? And go part by part, go to my feet. Because I do this often, it's 
kind of easy for me. I know what the feet feelings are. And as I'm doing this, it's also making sure that my body is comfortable enough so I don't need to worry about it, it's not going to call for my attention, it's cared for. And it works well. Go to my ankles. And I feel them, I don't describe them. This is subverbal. I can feel the sensation. In fact, a lot of times the feelings in my body I don't have a name for. Nobody has taught me the particular way of describing the feeling in my calves now, so I'm going up my body. It's a real experience, I've experienced it so often. Experience of comfort, of ease, tingling, that's the best I can do, that doesn't really say very much. it shows me my calves are comfortable. They're comfortable enough to disappear. And go to my knees. I know those feelings so well. The feeling I'm aware of in my knees now is very different than the feeling in my ankles. You'll percept be perceptive enough to know that feeling and to check that it's all okay. And go to my thighs. Every time I go past, I'm checking. Not sort of uh, like being a control freak. As I go past, I know if there's a wrong feeling there, it must mean there's some pressure there, something which I can do to ease that pressure, because I'm kind to the feelings in my thighs. And then get to my butt. And today, personally, the cushion under my butt could be pushed in a bit further, but I think, don't think that's going to matter today. It's good enough. I like that good enough perception because perfection is just too demanding. Good enough is exactly what it says. It's good enough for the purpose of relaxing my body enough so it can vanish, so I can become aware of the mind. Then I straighten my back. That's actually awareness of the waist. The back is not straight, there's discomfort in my waist. Straighten my back, make sure it's just in a good position. And then go to the bottom of my torso and sweep my kindfulness up my digestive tract. Feels good today, but nevertheless, just want to make sure there's no hidden tension there which will cause pain and disturb me later. Imagine just sweeping your awareness like a CT scan, but you're the, your mind is recording what's occurring. 
you can feel things. When it gets up to my stomach, because I only finished eating three hours ago, three and a half hours ago, so my stomach is pretty empty now, or this is comfortable. So I can move up to my lungs. Because I'm sitting down, not exercising, not walking up a hill, my lungs are pretty comfortable, they're not overextending their ability. So it feels comfortable in a comfort which can be maintained. You go up to the shoulders, I can feel them. I can feel, I do feel a tension between my neck and my shoulder muscles. So, I, look, I just do that automatically. You observe and you let go, you relax. You do this a lot and it's a, an automatic process. Any problem, any tightness, when you see it, it eases off. I go down my arms, past my elbows and wrists to my hands. I did adjust my fingers to make them really comfortable. And now I feel my arms and hands and my torso and my legs. I've gone through them quite fast today. Everything feels good for me. So now I can go up to my neck. And again, I found the trick with the neck is just to make sure the head is well balanced. It's not too far forward, not too far back. Not to the left, not to the right, just well balanced. And then to the head itself. I often say the muscles around the eyes the mouth, those are the two main areas. So my goal is to relax those muscles, to make them at ease. And of course, that's now occurred. And then I look at the whole body really relaxed and I do pause until I can become aware of the delight of relaxation. You may not experience that but if you do I encourage you to focus on that delight. There's nothing wrong with delighting in the pleasure of relaxation, of silence, of meditation. When I perceive the pleasure of relaxation, bodily comfort, as I do now, it's really quite
quite satisfying. It makes me more relaxed. It allows many of those bodily feelings to disappear. So I go inside this realm called my mind. I ask myself, how peaceful are you now? I think it's because of the way I was talking earlier. As if my mind is just, just ready to jump in. I know how to jump in. First of moment awareness, first of all. Shouldn't need to convince you. Now is where your future is being made. You don't learn from the past as much as you learn from the present moment. The present moment is real. The past is whatever part of that past you want to pick up. I learned that from the two bad brick stories. Why was I always picking up the negativity from the past? So now I drop the whole past. When you're watching in this moment, and you're kind to this moment, In the same way that you can perceive the delight in a relaxed body. After a while, you might be able to perceive the delight in this present moment. It's much more enjoyable than the past or the future. It's like you're free. Free from the past. Free from the future. You're in this moment. Enjoy it. And then see if you can care for the silence. Don't try and describe this to yourself in words. It's usually this time in the meditation I shut up because as soon as I start talking about silence, I feel all these explanations desecrate it. But I will say a few more words. In the silence, hopefully you may notice that many of your senses are shut down. At least they're not strong. You can't see. You can only hear me. And the feelings in the body are mostly gone. Let's see if you can notice your breathing. 
For me, it comes up naturally at this point. It's not as if you bring the breath to mind, it's always there. It's just you notice it now because there's nothing else in its way. No need to notice a whole breath from beginning to end. Just notice a part of the breath which is occurring now. And give it kindness. So you're just happy to watch the breath as it is. You're not using it as a means to get somewhere. Just enjoying the amount of peace, stillness, freedom. Just being able to watch a part of a breath occurring in this moment, silently. Try not to describe it. Feel it. If there's enough joy there, it's easy to maintain that awareness. You don't focus. The breath draws your attention to it. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And after a while, the physical breath gets less and less, and the joy of it increases. And then you might start to perceive lights in the mind. If they do, be kind to those nimittas. Don't do anything with them. You're just in this moment. Don't get excited or afraid. Just let them grow. I'm going to be silent now. There's always nimittas coming up already.
is getting close to the end of the meditation. What disappeared when you're really into the meditation? What were you not aware of? What vanished? Sometimes it's like putting aside lots of burdens, lots of baggage, so you don't have to carry them. You feel free. It's called peace. And even the body, you come back to body awareness. The body feels light and rested. The benefits of meditation are huge. I will now ring the gong. Once it finishes sounding for the third time, please come out from the meditation. I do hope that was interesting for you as I just went a little bit deeper than I normally teach. So, questions now. Before we do the questions from the internet, any questions from here? Yes. The five aggregates as part of name and form, the same as independent origination where yes. name and form is dependent on consciousness. Yes, so they're both interdependent without the objects of consciousness, which is an easier way of saying what name and form is. Without the objects of consciousness, there's no consciousness without Consciousness is no objects of consciousness. You need two together. But if ever you come to some of the Dharma classes which I teach, the next one is uh, on Sunday week time, you hear me state that we don't really, should never call Vijnana consciousness, but call it consciousnesses. Six completely different types of consciousness. And that's basically how the Buddha would teach it. What is consciousness? There's six different types of consciousness. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and knowing. And they're totally different. Each one has its own uh, objects. And because if we can separate them and just know the difference between them, then it's much easier to understand the mistake people make thinking that consciousness is something permanent, always there just switches from one type of consciousness to the other. 
and they're different. They're different animals. Does that answer your question? Okay. And any other questions anyone has? Okay, let's get the internet questions. But thank you for answering from the floor because sometimes I feel that, you know, you come all this way and you're sitting here and I just uh, ignore you. So please, I apologize for that. But anyway, let's get some questions from overseas. Germany, Arizona, Bulgaria, Arkansas, and India today. After a few operations over the last year, my meditation is not the same. I can calm down the irritations but not reach peace because there is tension or tightness. What to do? There is tension and tightness, but you can go beyond the tension and tightness. Look, I'm not just saying that as theory. Uh, actually, I haven't had operations, but I remember this time as a young monk when I had typhus fever, scrub typhus. It's like typhoid. And just in hospital with a fever after about two or three weeks, feeling terrible, no energy at all. And then managing to actually, to, I got basically kind of fed up. And I thought, well, I'm a monk, why don't I meditate? So I did meditate, got into a beautiful state of meditation, even though my body was weak and painful and feverish. So, even the pain of an operation, you can go past those pains, make them as comfortable as possible, and start focusing on your something like uh, the breathing, and go inside the breath. Don't try and focus on the aches and pains. Do the best you can relax them and go inside them. And that way you can actually get beyond them. It can be done, it's much more difficult. And number two, anyway, after a while those aches and pains of the, med of the, of the body will disappear. They'll get less and less and less and you find them meditate more and more and more. But don't get um, disappointed. Keep on trying to get deep into the meditation and don't set yourself goals and get disappointed when you don't meet those goals and just see how far you can go. From Arizona, how do I care for the fantasies without emotionally getting sucked into them? Just the same way that if you're a carer in a hospital, you can care for your patients in the hospital or you're a doctor, but you don't get emotionally sucked in you know, to their whatever happened to them. And so, same with your fantasies. Don't personalize them. They're not your fantasies. They're just some cause and effect from some past. And if you want to get emotionally sucked into them, where are they going to lead? What's going to happen to them? And after a while, if you rush them through, you think, you know, where does this lead? What next? And after a while, it's just not worth it. I used to, because I was a young man, used to fantasize of being like a great soccer player and scoring the, because I was English, okay, scoring the winning goal in the World Cup or something. But then, when I said, well, then what? <laughs> and the then what just killed everything. You've got to do it all over again. <laughs> and of course, that's what stops the fantasies. There is, is constantly a movie playing that I can't help but be involved. You can help. I'll get involved into it. <laughs> Look, movies. I remember being on an aircraft once and just screen came down and a movie was being played. And I remember the name of the movie even, called Armageddon. Have you seen that one? I've seen it, but I didn't listen to it because 
didn't have a headphone, didn't ask for one, shouldn't ask for one. So I saw the movie without the soundtrack. It was one of the funniest comedies I've ever seen. I was laughing my head off. People thought I was mad, but they were getting really excited. They were mad, not me. It was only a movie. So if you can somehow, with your fantasy, cut out the commentary. So like a movie, but silent. And then you find you can cut out a lot of that which interests you. And it just is it's, it's fake. If a teenager with almost no meditation experience has a life-changing jhana, does that mean they meditated in past life and just got lucky? Thank you, Ajahn. Quite likely. Because, you know, these jhanas are amazing. You know, you think that nimittas are pretty cool, but if you get into the jhanas, well, they really blow your mind. And how can a teenager actually do that? I do know one. Yeah, I think he was 19 years of age. And he got in a nice deep meditation. I shouldn't go any further <laughs> with that story. Does that mean they meditated in past lives? Very, very likely. You, know, you do have past lives and you do carry those experiences and some of those skills into your next life. So that's what happens. So yes. Is it good to repeat a mantra in your mind while meditating? You can repeat a mantra in your mind, just a couple of simple words, but only at the beginning. When you start to get still, just be quiet. Mantra is okay at the beginning, but as you really get into it, you don't need that anymore. What benefits do we see from mindfulness in day-to-day -day activities? What is the value of Yoniso Manasikara, wise attention on day-to-day -day stuff? How does it support meditation practice? Mindfulness in day-to-day -day activities just makes you a little bit more aware of what you're doing. And as long as you actually act on that mindfulness, you don't just be aware. What was that story? The story of the rich, this one of those old jokes of mine, this very wealthy lady who went to the temple to do some meditation. And she told, she lived in this big mansion alone. So she had a gatekeeper. And she told the gatekeeper, listen, there are thieves around this neighborhood. Many people have been robbed. I want you to be mindful. And so the, the guardian of the house said, yes, madam, I will be mindful. I'll go to meditation retreats. I often practice mindfulness. Oh, good. So the owner of the house went to the temple, did a nice sort of meditation day. When she went home, she found her house was ransacked. The burglars had been in and stole everything. And she said to the guard at the, the gate of the house, I told you to be mindful. Now look at all these, these thieves who have stolen everything. And he said, but madam, I was mindful. I saw the thieves going in and I noted, thief going in, thief going in, thief going in. I saw jewelry going out and I noted jewelry going out, jewelry going out, jewelry going out. I saw them back there trucking. So truck going in, truck going in, truck going in, and I saw them taking your safe out, safe going out, safe going out. I was mindful all the time, madam. <laughs> Some of you heard the story before. But mindfulness is not enough. That's why, you know, I just added the kindness to it. Kindfulness. That's much better. So 
Mindfulness is okay, we need more than mindfulness. Kindfulness. Job of Yoni Samanasika, a wise attention on day. Of course, if you're wise attention when you're driving your car, you don't crash it, you don't go through the red light because you've got wise attention. So what should you be doing when you're driving your car? What's wise attention on? On your breath? Please don't watch the breath when you're driving your car, watch the traffic. <laughs> In other words, what's the most important object? That's the one you watch. How does it support meditation practice? Because sometimes you're not even just what, having to watch the breath all the time. Sometimes the breath's not there. So I say when you get into deep meditation states, the breath is gone. You just got beautiful things which are much more beautiful, much more effective. Even your breath is just only to be used for part of the course into the deep meditations. It's not the goal of meditation. It's the path. You use a car to get close to this place. You can't bring your car into this room. You can only use it so far. And you get out of the car, you're wearing your shoes, and you come into this hall, you use your shoes so far, and then you leave your shoes outside. You can't bring your shoes inside here. Just like your breath. You can use your breath so far, and then you have to leave it. Even like mantras, you can use them so far, and then you have to drop them as the mind gets even more refined. That's the way of meditation. Okay. Questions, comments, complaints, arguments. I'm in the mood today. <laughs> Anything? Because it's seen, you know, sometimes people say, Breath meditation, insight meditation, just what are you teaching Ajahn Brahm? In the Gopakamogalana Sutta, so I'm quoting the text now, that inspires people. Because it means I'm not making this up, this is not what Ajahn Chah taught. This is what the Buddha taught. After the Buddha passed away, this Gopakamogalana went to see Ananda, the, you know, the chief disciple, of, well, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, who'd been with the Buddha all these years. He was like the go-to person once the Buddha passed away. And they asked Ananda, what type of meditation did the Buddha teach? Was it meta-meditation? Breath meditation? Insight meditation? What type of meditation did the Buddha teach? And he answered, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. That's what the Buddha taught. It's powerful. Just that statement showed that when the mind is still, really still, hindrances go, and seeing the truth is almost an automatic process. You can't miss it. So that's how the Buddha taught. And I was just saying this to someone a, a couple of days ago, actually only yesterday. How many of you have been on pilgrimage to India to see the Buddhist holy sites? Have you? 
Where did the Buddha live? If you look at the Hatipadopama Sutta, you don't find where the Buddha lived by going to India. You go into these jhanas. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. The four holy places. That's where the Buddha hung out. Not in his other places, that's material. This is the internal. So if you really want to go on a pilgrimage to the Buddha's holy sites, please come on one of these meditation retreats. You do not need a passport. You do not need a visa. <laughs> All you need to do is follow the instructions and go inside. Okay, any comments or questions? Okay, I think I've bamboozled you. One of my favorite words, bamboozled. Okay, so let's now about a few times Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and then we can see what we're going to do next. Thank you.